Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, good morning, folks. Uh, my name's Norm, and I'm an alcoholic. And I'm uh, very happy to have the opportunity to be back into uh, Minnesota again. Uh, this trip was a little different. I was in here a month ago, and I <clears throat> had a great deal of problems. As a matter of fact, they almost jerked my passport coming through. They, I thought they had it because they canceled the flight uh, when I came in. And uh, as a matter of fact, I spent the evening in the airport almost <clears throat> in Minneapolis. It was kind of a, a rough trip, and I uh, got into Duluth, and they picked me up in Duluth, and I went over to Superior. <clears throat> and the following day, why, three girls... Uh, and I use the word loosely, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, invited me for lunch. Uh, and, you know, when you're invited for lunch, why, you always figure they're going to pick up the tab. We got to lunch, and the bill uh, came, I don't know, it was $37.80. And everybody started fumbling in their purse. And uh, <laughs> I couldn't believe what I was listening to. One had a check, but no identification, and the other had an identification, but no check. And uh, <laughs> the end result was that uh, I said, well, let me. <laughs> I was... Uh, I was really overjoyed, <clears throat> and uh, and the flight back in, and I got to the airport, and my car had a flat tire, so it was <clears throat> rather an experience. This one here has been somewhat different up to this point, but in all seriousness, though, I I really enjoy coming into uh, Minnesota. I've always had a lot of fun. I enjoy the people. I certainly want to thank the uh, chairman. I want to thank Dick for the hospitality, for the invitation, for the opportunity to be here, and his wife Irene, and the entire committee. I uh, also want to welcome any and all new people that are here this morning for your first 30 days at Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, if there aren't any new people here this morning or brand new, you know, that would really be a surprise. You know, 10 o'clock Sunday morning, why, <clears throat> that's really not the time to get to Alcoholics Anonymous. You're usually... <laughs> but if there are any new people, this time of year we get a lot of new people coming into Los Angeles, and I take it for granted we get new people coming in here. You see, we're between the seasons. In Los Angeles, why, in February is the last of the Christmas holdouts, and we kind of, you know, they get in and then that's it for a while uh, until... We move into May, which is the light wine and beer season, and uh, <laughs> between the seasons we get some dropouts. As a matter of fact, we get quite a few dropouts in Los Angeles about this time, and uh, a lot of new people coming into the program. So I, I take it for granted that there's a lot of new people out there this morning, or a few new people, and if, if you are, by golly, uh, you probably resent the, the hell over the fact that you're a new person in Alcoholics Anonymous, and by golly... Uh, that isn't anything unique, because I, I can't visualize anybody coming to AA looking forward to it. Uh, you know, it's, it's not something that we spend a lifetime wanting to do. There, you know, frankly, there's not a hell of a lot of class to being an alcoholic, and uh, no status connected to it. We never issued out pins of identification that said you were a 32nd degree alcoholic, and you had the opportunity to run around the town and show everybody the pin, and then, Jesus, the town was overjoyed. You know, man... The, I'm glad you made it, Norm. You work like hell. Uh, we resist this program right down to the bitter end because, hell, we're not alcoholics. Uh, the day before I came to the program or the week before I came to the program, I was a, a heavy drinker uh, and a victim of unusual circumstances and rotten drivers, but I'm sure as hell not an alcoholic. I ain't going to AA. Uh, and we do everything possible before we surrender and come to this program. It's the most unpopular fellowship in the world. We change environments and jobs and wives and go to jail, and some alcoholics would rather die. You know, man, I'd rather die than go to AA. He dies, you know. I'll, man, I'll show you ain't going to them rotten meetings, and he never does. <laughs> uh, we joke a little bit about it, uh, but, you know, when you get right down to it, it's pretty damn serious business because, you know, that's really the ultimate end. They tell us about it in that May book. You know, the ultimate end is the gates of insanity or death or surrender. I chose to surrender, not of my own doing, but I just couldn't find any more to try out there, and so I, I surrendered. <clears throat> and I came to the program, and I became a survivor. And the people that are here this morning, why, we're the survivors. And being a survivor is a hell of a deal. A survivor, to me, meant that I, 
I never, ha- I didn't know that until I got in, but once I got into the program, I found out that I, I never had to take another drink again if I didn't want to. I found a group of people who would know most everything about me, would still accept me, who weren't necessarily interested in where I'd been or where I was trying to go, but they were very interested in me as an alcoholic and as an individual, and they told me that if I wanted help, man, all I had to do was ask for it. <laughs> they called it the nickel therapy in those days. They said, Norm, put the money in the telephone, buddy, call me. Call me before you take the drink. And if you'll call me, I'm going to be down there to see you. And if I can't make it, I'll send somebody else. And I put a lot of nickels in the telephones when I first came in, and I made a lot of calls, and I never ceased to be amazed. Because people came down to see me. People I barely knew, people that didn't want anything from me. People that didn't sit there with that pity and that hate that I've been used to all my life, but they sat there with compassion and with understanding. They were guys from AA. And that's got to be the best deal I ever had in my life. And I'm a guy that looked half the world out there trying to find the best deal. You see, and I, I never found it until I, I got to this program and was introduced to this great group of people who would call themselves Alcoholics Anonymous. So if you're new out there this morning, why, well, give yourself a break, if you will, and grab the package that's available to you here. And I think, if you will, the day's going to come in, in your life when you can say without reservation, man, it's the best deal I ever had. In qualification of that initial statement I made, I'm an alcoholic. I'm not by any stretch of the imagination an authority or a consultant on the program Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, I heard the other day what a consultant was. I thought I might pass it on. It was, and it's clean. I, uh, <laughs> uh, <clears throat> a consultant is like the, you know, the old Tom cat you got, and, and he goes out, you know, night after night, and you get tired of him out there messing around, so you take him down to the, <clears throat> to the veterinarian, and you get him caponized, you get him fixed up, and <clears throat> you bring him on home. Now, <clears throat> he still goes out at night, but he don't do much. He just consults, you see. <laughs> <laughs> I never want to be a consultant. <laughs> anyway, I, I'm an example, <clears throat> good or bad, that, that AA works, that it hasn't been necessary for me to take a drink, steal anything, or go to jail now for over 26 years. Uh, I'm sure that... Uh, <laughs> you, really, <clears throat> you really didn't need, need to do that, but I, <clears throat> I'm glad you did, or I'd been, up, <laughs> been very upset. Because I really didn't think anybody would be impressed, but uh, I am, obviously, I never brought it up, and I was hoping you would clap, you know. <laughs> and not only that, you never know, uh, I've been talking about it for years, we might get a pension program going in AA. <laughs> and God knows if we do, I'd like to get credit for all my time. You know, once you had 25, why now you're in... Anyway, <clears throat> to the new people who are out there this morning, that's a difficult thing to understand. Anybody's been around sober for 25, 26 years, and... And hell, I can relate to that. It, it hadn't been that long ago that I can't remember sitting in that first AA meeting. I hope to God I never forget. I'm sitting there in that first AA meeting, and I'm 29 years old. <clears throat> and uh, 55. He's trying to calculate it. I knew that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can see the click, click, click. <laughs> anyway, I'm sitting there, and I'm 29 years old, and the guy <clears throat> stands up in front of the meeting that night. <clears throat> and he makes a very profound statement. He said, I haven't found it necessary to take a drink, steal anything, go to jail now for nine and a half years. And my first indication is I want to, you know, I want to get up and I want to say, you know, man, you, you are the biggest liar I've ever heard. Because how in the hell could a guy function for nine and a half years if he doesn't drink? You know, how can you make it out there in that rotten street and deal with them lousy people and meet your responsibilities and you, <clears throat> and you got to be honest, you couldn't steal anything anymore. And he hadn't had a hooker now for nine and a half years. And I was, <clears throat> no, that's a drink where I come from. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what it is in Minnesota. <laughs> Oh, you got to clean it up on Mother's Day. I better watch that. 
Anyway, I hadn't had a, you know, he hadn't had a drink for, for nine and a half years, and I, you know, I, I was really upset over this, uh, because I hadn't come to AA for nine and a half years. I don't think anybody came into the program for nine and a half years, did you? No, I came into AA for a little while. No, I came in to get the heat off. <clears throat> I had a hell of a lot of heat on out there in the street, and I wanted to get the heat off, and I wanted to get back out there and get going because I had a lot of things to do. And I'd made a lot of giant sacrifices when I came to this program, like all alcoholics, man. I give up a lot of things I like doing, like throwing up on myself and... You know, going to jail and people knocking the hell out of me. That's what I gave up. But when you're, you're sitting there and you're brand new, these aren't the things you're thinking about. When you're sitting there and you're new, you're thinking about, man, all of the, <clears throat> the activity that's going out there and I got to get out there and get going and I got to see my friends and my friends are out there and I couldn't remember their names, but they're there, you know that, <clears throat> and they'll probably die if I'm not there to help guide them through life and all the rough spots and on this thing went and I damn near rationalized myself right out the door and into that gin mill. But I, I kept going to meetings because my sponsor said, you got to keep going to meetings. <laughs> so I went to meetings. And eventually I, I learned that, uh, <clears throat> that the program operated for 24 hours just this day. And they, that's really all there is to it. You just got to take care of today, Norm. You get up in the morning and say, I won't take a drink today. And you go on from there. <clears throat> I was able to bring it down to where I could really handle it. And I found out I won't take a drink right now. Uh, my life is a right now. It's because that's really all I got is this moment, isn't it? You know, I couldn't change what happened a couple of hours ago, and I sure as hell can't tell you for sure what's going to happen a couple of hours from now. If I got anything going for me, I've got going what's right now. And being able to get all I can get out of it right now is what it's all about. <clears throat> Good, bad, or indifferent, Norm, get it all right now. And if I take care of the now period of my life, I soon discovered that the day would take care of itself. And I also found out that if I could stay sober for a day, a week might come and it did. And then it was a month and a year. And before you knew it, why, 26 years ran by. And it really seems yesterday. Just yesterday, I'm walking through the doors, sitting at those early AA meetings, going through the, the mental gymnastics and wondering what the hell am I doing in AA. Because as I made mention, I'm not overjoyed over the fact that I'm an alcoholic coming to this place. And I thought of all the things that could have been, why am I an alky? Hell, I didn't go down to my high school concert and he said, Norm, what would you like to be? And I said, an alcoholic. And he said, marvelous, got a hell of a program for jackasses like you, yeah. <clears throat> so I ripped that city out there for 15 years, and I ended up in AA, and everybody lived happily ever after, and that isn't the way it is. I come from a, you know, I come from a family of heavy drinkers. I had great training as a young person, by golly. My people know a lot about booze. We're not too intelligent. Irish-Italian people aren't too intelligent. You know that. All we got going for us is we talk a lot with our hands. <clears throat> But I'll tell you one thing, they knew a lot about booze. The Italians made it, the Irish drank it, and I got to AA, and that's about the way it went, you know. But in the initial offset, I felt, you know, my family created my problem. Uh, the environment created the problem. I'm born in L.A., anybody born in L.A. has got a problem, you know that. Uh, well, I also know that that had no bearing on the fact that I'm an alcoholic. You know, people, places, and things didn't create my trouble. I created my trouble. I drank the whiskey. The whiskey was my problem. I figured that out by myself. It wasn't all these deep-seated emotional balderdashes out there. Man, it was that whiskey. Yeah, I drank that whiskey as hard and as fast as I could drink it. And somewhere in that lottery of my life, I crossed some invisible line from the social aspect of drinking in the compulsive area. One's too many and a thousand aren't enough. Looking for the answer to living in a quart of whiskey and I can't find it. My entire life revolves around booze. People that sell it and people that drink it. And after half a dozen drinks, I have absolutely no control over my destiny. I am alcoholic because I drank too much. What a giant decision that was. Figured that out by myself. Sure. And I'm the guy that did the drinking, so I'm the problem. Yeah, no matter where I go, I'm the first guy to get there. Yeah, yeah I, don't, I don't have any trouble getting it messed up out there in the street. I take care of that very well. 
I'm able to, from time to time, overreact to any situation, anywhere, anytime. I'm able to stand there and flatly refuse to buy living on living's terms. I want it my way, and I'm going to get it. Yeah, sure, becoming affluent, uh, educated and wealthy is very good, but getting even, man, that's the deal, isn't it? Yeah. <clears throat> and that still comes back from time to time. Here, I am the basic problem. <clears throat> it's changed a great deal since I came into the program, but it's still there. I'm a rationalizer, a justifier, a compromiser, and I got a rotten attitude. You don't need any more than that when you stop thinking about it. I had each and every one of those <clears throat> qualifications before I ever took a drink. I traveled half the world in half my life. I made a complete ass of myself. I spent money I didn't have buying things I didn't need, trying to impress people I didn't like. <clears throat> Sat around them gin mills night after night, talked in millions, spent in thousands, never had a dollar in my pocket, drove them Cadillacs up and down the bar night after night after night, yeah. And one of them high rollers said, what do you do? I said, man, I do it all. Jesus, I thought you knew that. I, <clears throat> I'm the general manager of the universe, boy. That's what I am. <clears throat> Sitting there in a set of diggers, a hard hat and concrete all over me. You know, he knew I was important, didn't he? Yeah. <clears throat> it was important to me to impress people uh, with a sense of well-being I probably never, never had. I, I felt it was very important, though, that I let him know I was all things to all people. I, I might drive my car around the city in the summertime with the windows rolled up to make him think I had an air conditioner. You see, all, all of these things seem to be very significant in my life. I heard a story in Texas many years ago. You may have heard it, but I'm going to tell it anyway. It also is clean because it, it sums up my entire life, the giant rationalization. It's a story about the blacksmith making a horseshoe. He pounds out that horseshoe, you know, and there's an old cowboy standing there watching the whole deal. And he throws it down on the ground. And the old cowboy reaches down, and he picks up the horseshoe. And quick, he throws it back down. And the old blacksmith turned to him and he said, hot, isn't it? And the old cowboy said, no, it don't take me long to look at a horseshoe. <laughs> <clears throat> kind of gets to you, doesn't it, huh? <laughs> because it's a story of my life, you know. I justified the stupidity. You know, I'm laying on the street dead drunk, and the guy says, Norm, you're drunk there in the street. Why don't you get up? And I said, I ain't drunk. I like streets. Yeah. <clears throat> <clears throat> the problem was being other people. I came to the program, and one of the giant fringe benefits, I got IAA. Other than the fact that I was able to find sobriety, the second thing that I found was that I could spend a day out there in that city street being myself. I didn't have to be anybody anymore, anywhere, any place. All I had to be was me. Because the people in the program, that's all they requested. When I walked through the doors in AA, my sponsor and all these flaky friends, they all said, man, don't impress us here, buddy. We've been impressed by experts in AA. Because everybody in AA is an expert. And the beauty of that statement is you don't need to believe me. All you got to do is talk to the guy sitting next to you about anything. <clears throat> yeah. If he doesn't know what you're talking about, he'll probably say, that's true, you know. And I, <laughs> so you find immediately you're surrounded by a great group of experts here in Alcoholics Anonymous. I, I made a mistake when I walked through the doors. I thought I'd impress this guy pretty good. And I said, you know, son, I've been in the can about 25 times. He said, the hell you have, sonny. I did that in a year. <laughs> so you find out immediately that you don't have to live that way any longer. If you knew here this evening or this morning, why, give it a little consideration and, and get a hold of that package and <clears throat> grab it and take it out there with me tomorrow and both of us will spend a day on that city street just being ourselves. It's a hell of an experience for an alcoholic, an experience that no alcoholic should be without. This morning I tell you a little bit about me and what happened and what I was like and what I'm trying to be like now, what the program means to me. And I don't know a better way to talk about it. It's the only story I got. 
<clears throat> people feel that if you've been around a period of time, you don't need to get into the um, into the booze and the problems and the things, but I, I don't know any better way. And if I'd have came to the program and I'd been new and I didn't hear a guy talk about that booze, that hard line out there, <clears throat> I just wouldn't have been around. And so this is the story that I have, and it hasn't changed a great deal because it hasn't been necessary to get a new story. It's very difficult getting new stories in this program, you know. <clears throat> I mentioned my story, and I told you a great deal about it. I, I have an attitude problem, and through an attitude problem, I had trouble. And the first trouble I had was in 39. I wasn't drinking in 39. I was stealing, but it was all because of an attitude problem. I wanted to prove something to somebody that I was something that wasn't. <clears throat> I'm a, a thief by trade and an alcoholic by absorption. I suppose that's the way you'd lay it out. I, I was a general manager, vice president of all the outside operations of the Midnight Auto Supply of the San Gabriel Valley. <clears throat> I was in the car business. In the beginning, I was in the car accessory business. I was in the hubcap business. We, <laughs> we used to pop them old hubcaps out there and run them out and sell them to individuals. And then we branched out and we got hubcaps, radios, heaters, spotlights, carburetors. <laughs> then it got to be a job to gather up all that crap. We just stole cars, you know. <laughs> and, oh, God, it was the best business I ever in my life. Because you didn't need any money to get into it. No capital. <laughs> You carried absolutely no inventory, and everything you turned was 100% profit. How the hell are you going to beat that deal, huh? They teach that in school today. I've always felt I've been way ahead of them out there. My problem was illegal. <clears throat> and you're going to play, you've got to pay. Uh, there's more policemen than thieves. The inevitable happens, you're arrested. I was arrested. Went in front of the man. The man said, seven years. What are you reformatory? Get him the hell out of here. <clears throat> out to the Whittier Reformatory, not out there for a long period of time. The juice got in, and it worked, and I got a release, and I came back to L.A., I didn't have any change of attitude. I'm still looking for the fantasy land. And the fantasy land walked in, and it was 1941. It was Easter week in L.A. Easter week, Balboa Beach, the Rendezvous Ballroom, Stan Kenton, and Padre Beer. Man, it was a deal. God, <clears throat> drinking that old Padre, six, seven cents a bottle at that time, get a little buzz on, go in the dance hall, dance with them dollies, act four times drunker than what you were, breathe on them girls, or, you know, let them know. <clears throat> yeah, big high roller coming in from L.A., girly, yeah. A lot of fun. In the beginning, it was a fun time. I'm not an alky the first time out of the shoot. A lot of guys feel they are. I wasn't. I worked at it. I moved from Padre Beer, Rainier Ale, the old Green Death, and from the Green Death, I got to whiskey. And when I got to whiskey, let me tell you, I got it. <clears throat> I'm a lucky alky because I didn't need anything more than whiskey. Whiskey did every loving thing I thought anything ought to do. Man, it got me downtown. And I want to be downtown. And I don't want to be downtown in a little while. I want to be there right now. And that's thing, you know, one thing about whiskey, it gets your attention, I'll tell you. In the summertime, boy, you pull one out from under the seat. It's about 105, and you take a long jolt out of that baby. Boy, it'll get your attention, I'll tell you. It gets you downtown, downtown in the summertime, Yeah. And I broke in on that 10 high. Let me tell you, that's a dedication in it. Oh, God. I, I don't know whether they sell 10 high in Minnesota. They should ban it, but <clears throat> they're still selling in L.A. That was the rottenest, roughest crap I ever drank in my life. I don't think they made anything worse than 10 high. 60, 70 cents a pint. Man, and that every drop burned. God, it, it burned going and it burned coming, you know. <laughs> when you're a young man training, your stomach is a little tender, and... Uh, you know how you, you take a long drag, and baby, that all the way down, it's burning, and it's burning coming up. It's running out my nose and making my eyes water. But I hung in. I think that's important, yeah. <laughs> if you're going to be an alcoholic, you don't give up because you throw up a little bit. Boy, stay in there, huh? And the day comes when you don't heave anymore, and you feel like you've really arrived. 
And there's a lot to be said about cheap whiskey. When you throw it up, you don't lose much, right? <laughs> yeah, I bought a friend of mine some of the in business. Well, I was talking about her a while back. You know, in our business, we buy booze. I bought a friend of mine some wild turkey. $13 a fifth. Boy, and all I could think about was, what if he throws it up, for God's sake, you know? <clears throat> $13 all over the ground. That'll make you sick just watching it roll out, won't it? <laughs> well, that was the beginning of my problems. By 1942, in January, I was in the Navy. And I was in the Navy because I had to go in the Navy. I didn't have a choice. A violation of probation, and they wanted me to do something. They wanted me to hell out of circulation. I joined the Navy. I went in as a seaman in 42 in January, and four years later, I was discharged out, and I was a seaman. <coughs> and that was very difficult to do, but I managed it, you see, because I took me and my attitude right with me. I got in there, and I've always reacted to authority or overreacted, and the Navy's authority, and I overreacted. <coughs> in the first year, year and a half that I was in, I had a deck, a summary, a general court-martial. The general court-martial was the highest the Navy had to offer at that time. They didn't go any higher than that. I was awarded 11 and a half months in a Navy prison off of the general court-martial run by the Marine Corps. I don't even need to get into that. That was a rotten deal. I was able to, uh, to though, come out of prison. I was reinstated to duty because my attorney went for clemency, and I was reinstated. I fulfilled a commitment of four years. I had some other miscellaneous problems while I was in the service. I, I had, uh, you know, one jam after another uh, when I was on the beach. And when I was on shipboard, I didn't get in a lot of trouble. Like most alcoholics, I'm a hard worker. I... Uh, you got to be, you know, 99% of the alcoholics are hard workers and they, they have to be, you know, uh, they, they got to work 25% harder than anybody else just to stay even out there, right? Uh, because you're always coming from behind. You always got the heat on. The best day an alky has is Tuesday because he missed Monday. You know, he's, he's got to go like hell out there, right? Uh, and so when he's on a job, man, he goes. And, he, he did, and I was a good sailor and I like the uh, ships, I like the sea. Consequently, I, I did a good job and I was able to keep the heat off to the point where they didn't kick me out. I came out on Christmas Eve in 1945, discharged, back to Los Angeles in 1946. And in 1946, through the grace of God, the most in strange and mysterious ways, in spite of myself, <coughs> I heard about AA. 1946, 1946 in a rotten town called Pasadena. <coughs> Pasadena was a bad town, bad drinking town, bad for me, bad judge, bad policeman, bad. Just didn't like it. They didn't like me either. I, I, uh, one problem after another. Where in 1946, I just had a rash of trouble. I had a year suspended on a three-year probation. I made a statement to myself, I'm not drinking in Pasadena, or at least I'm not going to get drunk in Pasadena. I'm not going to do that. No. And I didn't do that for a couple of months, maybe three. And one night I'm, I'm out of town and I'm drinking with a couple of friends, a couple of vice presidents. I always drank with vice presidents. And while drinking, I committed the cardinal sin. I began to think. And that's a bad deal for an alcoholic. You should either think or drink, but you should never do them both at the same time. Because I got to thinking about that rotten town of Pasadena and that, you know, that flaky judge and that, you know, those policemen. And if I want to go back to Pasadena, I'm going back. It's a free country, by God. I'm a veteran. I'm going back. And I went back. Yeah, obviously, after that kind of rationale, I drove back into Pasadena. I couldn't have been there a couple of hours. Uh, I got uh, very drunk, went out and got in my automobile, pulled out, drove a half mile. <clears throat> Before I knew it, a car's making a left turn in front of me. I can't see it. And I hit it and ran from the scene of the accident because I was frightened. I spent all my life being frightened. I was frightened. And when I woke up in the morning, I was frightened more because I'm laying in the can in Pasadena in a high-power tank. And they bring me down in front of the man, and the man tells me, a 501 felony, drunk driving, hit-and-run, bodily injury involved. And I might add, but for the grace of God that looks after damn fools and drunks, I didn't lay four people out in that street that night. It was just that close. 
Well, he sent me to jail, and in the city jail, I had the opportunity to share a jail cell with a man going to AA in 1946. The seed was planted. <clears throat> in spite of myself, God moving in strange and mysterious ways. To go back to a town to say, I'll never go back to again, to, to hit a car, the odds are thousand to one that that car is going to left turn me. To go in front of the same judge who has no choice but to send me to jail to serve time with a man going to AA. One man gets out of the can once a week to go to AA meetings out of 200, 250 people. The seed was planted. But I didn't do anything about it then because I was not that alcoholic then. I was that heavy drinker. It was the people, the rotten people out there are my problem. And so he left and I left. And I walked down that road for another eight and a half years, you know, qualifying for Alcoholics Anonymous. I'd love to tell you that he and I got together and we had a happy sobriety. We walked that road of happy sobriety. <clears throat> but eventually, you know, I came to the program eight and a half years later in February of 54 when I picked up that telephone and I called the central office in Los Angeles. I'm looking for this buddy of mine, Sullivan. And I can't find him. Eventually, our paths crossed. My jail partner, buddy. Our paths crossed. He'd had over three years on the program, but he chose to go, chose to go back out and to, to drink again because he didn't believe it. <clears throat> and he continued to drink and flop in and out of the program. And his ego wouldn't let him stay because he couldn't forget about the three years he had. And so he'd go back out again. And then one night, his sister-in-law called me. And she says, Norm, I, I hate to tell you this, but <clears throat> Marty was out last night and and he had an internal hemorrhage, uh, and he bled to death, and that was the end of the story. And I thought again, you know, how, how very sad it is. And why is it? Why did 25% of the people got to go back out and try again to prove to people like me that you can't make it? Man, that once an alcoholic, you die an alcoholic, you never recross that invisible line if you are that compulsive drinker. Why is it that they got to do it? I don't know. I am at the background of the education. I, I don't know. I only know that things of this nature come to pass. They happen. It comes from a power much greater than I, of this I am sure. <clears throat> Each and every time that it happens, though, it's, it's sad. When I came into the program, they said 50% of you guys are going to cut it the first trip. 25% of you are going to mess with the program, and eventually you're going to get it, and 25% are going to die or go crazy through the use of alcohol. <clears throat> I'm sure those statistics aren't right today. I'm sure that we're not getting 50% the first time out of the shoot. <clears throat> I'm sure that the, the death is far more than 25%. But still in all, why is it necessary? I couldn't tell you. Well, I walked that road and I drank a lot of whiskey in those next, next eight and a half years. In order to make this qualification, about that time, I, after I got out of jail, I went to work for one of the largest construction firms in the world in the pipeline and tunnel business. I was able to stay with these folks 11 years. And in that 11 years, I was at the right place at the right time. We had a lot of jobs going in 11 western states. And I, uh, you know, things moving good and uh, getting uh, promotions and uh, the money was good. And about that time, I had a little setback. And uh, that little setback I'm talking about was talking yesterday morning, <clears> or <throat> yesterday afternoon. I met a red-headed Irish woman. And she had a violent temper, a rotten disposition, and yelled at me all the time. Not only that, she was pregnant a great deal of the time. And uh, this, uh, this creates problems for the alcoholic. And she never recognized what a sensitive individual I was. All alcoholics are very sensitive people. Uh, you're out, if you're an alcoholic, you can agree to that. You know, I was out there, and I'd be drunk a couple of days, and I'd come home, and I'd walk in the house, and I want a little love, affection, and understanding. I don't want to be met at the door with that crap. You're drunk again, you know. The hell, she hadn't even smelled my breath. The walking drunkometer, man, from 20 feet, she could smell you. I could never understand that. I was always dumbfounded. I'd stand there in the kitchen, and she'd say, you're drunk again. And I'd wonder, how does she know? Standing there a Sunday afternoon, I'd had a bad day. A guy had opened my eye up. I had dried blood all down the side of my face. My shirt's torn, and I got one shoe on. And I was trying to figure out, how in the hell does she always know that? I went, 
Now, you can believe it or not, I'd call her on the damn phone, and she'd say, you're drinking, aren't you? God, I got paranoid. I'd jump out of the phone booth. I'd look around. Where the hell is that guy, you know? I knew she had hired people to follow me. What I didn't know was, you know, when I'd call her on the phone, I'd make some silly stare. She says, you know, how are you doing, baby? <laughs> I always thought that I was very coherent. Well, you can see under the circumstances, I had a bad life. No wonder I drank so much whiskey. <clears throat> now, standing there in the kitchen, you know, you've been gone a couple of days. Jesus, I'm tired. I like a little loving. And uh, she's standing there going, you're drunk again. And I'd say, who, me? And she'd say, yeah, you. And then I'd say, do you know who you're talking to? <laughs> Boy, that always gets him, doesn't it? Huh? Uh, just in case he doesn't know, doesn't know who she's talking to, you have the opportunity to introduce yourself to her, right? Yeah. Then I'd tell her, I'm old Norm, baby, that's who the hell I am, and don't you ever forget that. And then she'd mimic me as the only way them Irish women can do it. I'm old Norm, that's who I am. <laughs> <laughs> Very degrading for a high roller, I'll tell you. Standing there with your new business partner, you know, your new friend. You met him in the bar last night. You've invited him home. And the reason he's coming home with you is, hell, he don't want to go home alone either. <laughs> I've been on both sides of that fence, sure. There's that security of numbers, and you're standing there going, you know, you've embarrassed me in front of my best friend, you know. And, and he's giving you your talent, Norm, buddy, you know. <laughs> he's a big help, isn't he, yeah. All he's doing is digging it deeper, and you got to save face. And you tell her, by God, woman, <clears throat> if you're not going to apologize for what you just said in front of me and my friend, I'm going to have to leave, and this time I'm never coming back, and what do you think of that? And she would go down and throw all my clothes out. That's what she thought about it. <laughs> and then I would pick up my clothes. You have to. you got to save face in front of your friend who you can't think of his name. <clears throat> and you got to... Pick up them damn clothes and you got to get them out into the car in and out you're loading up the car boy And you're telling her he ain't never coming back again And the neighbors are out watching uh, <laughs> On a Saturday afternoon. What's better than the old Alky performing out there loading up his car? Beats the hell out of gun smoke every Saturday afternoon, did it? Yeah, he's loading up his car. And he's waving. I'm going He sits in his car honking his horn honk 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 Goodbye, I am never returning. She did it again, the rotten woman. And Zoom, you're gone. Two days later, Zoom, here you come again, right? And the reason you're coming back home is you tap out and you get tired of sleeping in the car. <clears throat> Boy, I'll tell you, that car sleeping will get you to AA, won't it? You know, your head screwed up under the armrest and the door handle in your ear. You ever wake up about midnight and you're sick as hell and you think your window's down but it's up, you know... Knock the hell out of your head, you know. Throw up all over your own window. And then you roll it down. Squish, 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 right? <laughs> and you say to yourself, drinking's fun. I'm having a marvelous time. More bad whiskey. But you're so damn sick, you know, you got to go home. You're tapped out and you go home. On the way home, maybe you have a flat tire. If you're an alcoholic, you wouldn't think of changing it. You might hurt yourself, so you drive on it. They call them rim drivers in AA. Driving on the tire, and it gets all chewed up, and the sparks are flying off of the rim, and you're pulling the car uh, you know, down the street that you live on, and the people are running out and getting the kids the hell out of the way so you don't kill anybody. Yeah, and you tool that car into the driveway, up on the lawn, through the hedge, open the door, fall out. 
Well, you lay out of the lot and you say to yourself, after a half an hour or so when you're getting up, you say, I wonder if anybody saw me. Yeah. <laughs> because as an alcoholic, you're deeply concerned about your reputation. <clears throat> Alcoholics worry immensely about what people think about them. It never occurred to me to quit drinking. They'd quit thinking about me. Yeah. Well, you can see under these adverse conditions, I did very little drinking around my home. <clears throat> I was a bottle hider. She found them. And so, I, well, I would have drank in them gin mills anyway because I was by, by nature. <clears throat> I was born and raised a bar drinker. I, I like the joints, man. I like the dark lights. I like the rotten music. <clears throat> Just hammered at you. I, I like the intellectual giants that I met there. I, about midnight, you never had to drink with just old working people. You drank with all of the high rollers, the big money, building the castles, forming the corporations. Wonder what the poor people are doing tonight because all the money was there. Jeez, yeah. <clears throat> when you got tired of talking and lying to each other, you could sit there and look in that mirror. And they put those mirrors in those gin mills so alcoholics can, can kind of stare at themselves. You, you kind of get that Maybelline look about midnight, don't you? Just wide-eyed, you know, that... <clears throat> You devil, you, yeah. It's amazing how good-looking you got in the last hour, isn't it? Uh, you sitting there, you bring that drink up and you notice your arm. You, you're, Jesus, you're well-built killer, too. Yeah! You're a lover and a killer. 150 ringing wet in those days and I couldn't lick my lips, let alone anybody else, huh? Boy, but that whiskey brings it all out. And you're wondering why the dollies aren't down there because, man, you got it going tonight, huh? <laughs> you got a $30 smiling Frankie Gordon suit on. You got 50 cents worth of chili all down the front of you there. A little whiskey spilled in with it, and you mumble a lot and smell bad, but you're a lover and a killer, that's what you are, as you slowly slide off the bar stool onto the floor. And the bartender 86 is you because you can't speak right. Or you go to the men's room. That's a bad deal. <clears throat> got to pay toilet. That's bad. <clears throat> you haven't got any money. So you got to slide under the door, right? Call them door sliders in AA. Bet there's some here today. <clears throat> then you slide out again, never realizing once you got in, all you had to do is turn the handle and walk out. Huh? <clears throat> <clears throat> what a revelation AA is, huh? All the good news comes in. No longer do I slide out. No. <clears throat> And I walked that road, and I went them gin mills all over the country, trying to find the answer to living in that quart of whiskey, trying to get a handle on it, trying to drink like my old man and my brothers, and as I trudged that road, that lottery of my life, the whiskey got every loving thing I owned of anything to me. Little by little, it ground it all down. The respect of the people I worked for and did business with eventually was taken away because I, I was no longer a trusted employee. I was in too many jams. Big jam, Moses Lake, Washington. Then a big jam. We had a 90-mile line going from Odessa, Texas to Big Spring. <coughs> At the end of the job, I got in a hell of a jam down there. They had no choice but to, <clears throat> but to put me in jail. I got picked up going about 90, 80, 90 miles an hour in a company, Roadmaster Buick, making a whiskey run from Odessa into Big Spring with a case of whiskey in the back end and an open, po open bottle beside me and probably half of it gone. And <clears throat> going down that Texas highway and them Texicans are right after me. Yeah, we had a lot of words and I lost all of it. <clears throat> the following day, I paid the fine. They took me to Midland. They put me on the plane. They sent me back to Los Angeles, and they said, don't come back. Never come back to West Texas again. And then they sent word to the corporation and said, don't let him come back. We don't need people of that of this nature. He's, uh, he's a hell of a good worker, good man, and all that. But Jesus, he's, he's always in the jam and in trouble. Now, the company told me the same thing. They said, Norm, you know, you're, you're a pretty good guy, but you're just, you're, Jesus, you're drinking too much. And we've been telling you for a long time you're drinking too much. And you, you seem to be bent on destroying yourself and destroying your life and destroying your family and... 
And the company is always on the edge with you, and you become so damned expensive we can't tolerate it. And then the next time we smell booze on your breath, Norm, we've got to bust you. You're through. You're out. No more. Do me a favor, will you please get the hell out of my office? And, and I remember the day because of hu the humiliation of it all. Uh, alcoholists can write volumes on humility because they've been humiliated so many times. I stand here in front of the man, you know, and I'm dying inside. And, my God, that, <clears throat> what I want to do, I want to reach out and I want to grab him by the throat and I want to say, who the hell do you think you are? Who do you think you're talking to, you Johnny-come-lately? No, I'm the guy that makes it run out there. I'm the backbone of that division. Who, who are you to tell me? <clears throat> but I'm scared to death, and I don't tell them nothing because I've got to have the job, because I've got to have the money, because I've got to keep the heat off out there on the street. <clears throat> and I've got to buy that whiskey. And so I don't say anything. And I swallow the gall, and I bite the bullet, and I rationalize within myself, and I'm a giant rationalizer. And I say, okay, to myself, he'll get away with it this time, but by God, the next time he jumps my case, he's through. By God, the next time that it happens, I'm going to tell him. I'm going to quit this rotten company. I'm going to form my own corporation. I'm going to run him out of business. And, and then he's going to have to come down to see me for a job, and he's going to walk in my office, and I'm going to say, I remember you. Get the hell out of here. And then I had another drink, and I dreamed another dream, and I slid off another bar stool. That's what I did. It didn't anything. I didn't do anything because I'm, I'm frightened. I spent a lifetime of being frightened. The whiskey, you know, the whiskey gave me the courage. And I wasn't scared when I was drinking the whiskey. But the respect of the people I worked for and did business with was gone. All the associations that I'd had, you know, little by little, avoided me. And then one day I drive home to the house that I live in, and I park the car, and I'm walking up, and I'm going through the, you know, on my mind. The Elkie's a schemer. The old scheme. One more lie, one more promise, old Red's going to let me in. Ah, <laughs> yeah. Standing there going through the third act. With the tears coming down, going, baby, give me a break. Jesus, don't throw me out. Got a hell of a deal, Red. Going down to see the priest take a pledge. Another pledge, another priest, another parish. Go down and see that doctor you was telling about. Red, Jesus, give me a break. Think of the kids. <clears throat> and she'd relent, and I'd get in. As soon as I get in, I'd start scheming to get back out again. Well, eventually, the day comes when you grind it all out, and they're sick and tired of the lies and the promises. <clears throat> and you stand there, and you hear the words that you can't, really, you can't really believe, but you know it's true. She says, Norm, Norm, you're a drunken bum. The hell, you'll never live to be 35 years old. You're drinking yourself to death. The kids are neurotic because of you, and I'm a neurotic because of you. And when you're working in the state, all I do is worry, Norm. All I do is sit here looking through the front room window, waiting to see your car come home, night after night after night. And when your car doesn't come in, I just die a little more. When I hear a siren scream the streets, I die a little more. No more. I call an attorney. I've asked for separate maintenance. I put a restraining order against you. <clears throat> nah, you're, I'm divorcing you, Norm. You, you get out of our life. We're better off without you. We don't need your money because you never have any money. You're tapped out. They're foreclosing us out of this house, Norm. They're taking away your automobile, and the people you work for don't want you, so get out of here. And you walk out, and you get in your car, and you drive away, and, and you say to yourself, Why me? Oh, God, why me? Why, that old Charlie, he don't even work. I ain't that bad a guy. Well, you know and I know you're an alky. You drink enough booze out there long enough and hard enough. It's just a matter of time until you grind it out, isn't it? Until the whiskey gets every loving thing you got that means anything to you. The wheels of alcohol, as I say, they grind very slow but very fine. And all you got to do is give it enough time and <laughs> it's got it all. Sure, there's cases. <clears throat> More so today than when I came in where guys walking through the door and they still got it all together, huh? Still got the woman, huh? They're walking through the door and they got the woman with them and uh, he's sick and, and she's sick and... You look in her eyes, and there's a story, and the story says, you know, this jackass has tried everything in the world, and none of it's ever worked. And I'm sure this isn't going to work either. And then you see the same couple a couple of months later. Uh, the guy, he's kind of sharped out a little bit, and he's cleaned up a little bit. 
And in a woman's eyes is a story. He says, I've been waiting 20 years for this to happen. And finally it's happened. And today we're happier than we've ever been in our life. And it's all made possible through a unique miracle that you and I choose to call Alcoholics Anonymous Eyes. And I'd love to tell each and every new guy here today, and woman here, that that's the way it's going to be for you. But that isn't necessarily the way it's going to be, you see. This isn't what we have to offer in Alcoholics Anonymous. There are people that put up with this crap for 20 years, always hoping this jackass is going to straighten out. You got 20 years of watching you flop in and out of the house, 20 years of picking up the pieces, 20 years of lying, 20 years of promises you can't make, <clears throat> 20 years of telling friends and relations don't come over, Norm's got the flu. He flew under the bed, that's what he flew, yeah. <clears throat> Hell, I wouldn't go through it 20 days, let alone 20 years. But there are people that'll hang in, go through it, end up with that ultimate miracle. <clears throat> but that isn't always going to be the case because you see what we have to offer you who are new in this program, a sobriety and a way of life. And whatever you are, you're going to be better at. You're a ditch digger, you're going to be a better ditch digger. We don't guarantee anybody's going to make a ton of scratch or drive a big iron or live in a big house on a hill or your woman's ever going to let you come in or your man, whatever the case may be. No, these are what we have to offer. And we'll throw in a little more. We'll reunite you with the sweetest thing you ever owned in your life, the respect of yourself as a human being. And I think that's what it takes to get in here. I think you've got to drop that out on the street. I don't think a guy walked through that door that still had any respect left for himself. <clears throat> I had to isolate one thing that drove me right down to the bottom of the, <clears throat> of the heap that got me down on my knees was that the one surrender point was the day I recognized that I had nothing going inside. When it became very, very difficult in the morning to wash my face and shave because I had to look at me. Because I knew, I knew inside I could still kid every man jack in town, drunk or sober. But the day came when I couldn't jive myself anymore. I just couldn't kid myself anymore. <clears throat> and I was so damn sick and tired of being sick and tired. And I didn't know that. I just knew that I was sick of all that was going on. And I couldn't find anything to relieve the pain. And I hadn't tried AA. I heard about AA in 1946 when I was sitting in the city jail. I heard about AA a couple of months prior to that when my wife... Had brought it to my attention. Suddenly, my neighbor had saw that motion picture come back, little Sheba. It's crazy, isn't it, how the seed gets planted? And in that motion picture, they had Alcoholics Anonymous, and they talked about that program. And that's how she come to find out about the program and how she passed it on to me. And that's all I knew. And so I called that central office because I didn't have anything left to try. And I didn't want to live the way I was living any longer. And then at Central Office in Los Angeles, I talked to a guy who was a very kind, a very understanding individual, and he told me about this program. And he said, I was sincere about my endeavor that I would take these numbers down and I would call. And eventually he said, you'll get a hold of somebody that'll be out to see you. Now, if you run out of numbers, you don't get anybody. Call me back and I'll give you some more numbers. And I called, and eventually I got a hold of a guy and he says, hang in, I'll be out in a while. And a couple of hours go by and a man drives up and he walks into my house and he sits down. And he tells me about this program and he tells me about himself. And he also said, now, I want you to remember something, my friend, that this program is for people that want it, not need it. And it's you. You need us. And we don't need you. And that you're going to have to go to any length to get this thing, Norm. Any length. The same way you went for the booze. Any length. Lied, cheated, conned, stole, walked. Any length. Come to AA. Any length to get this program. He said, if you think I'm going to pick you up, take you to a meeting, you're crazy. Nah, you, you got a car, you drive. You got a car, what the hell are you doing in AA? Yeah, people that own cars and watches, you can sell something and buy whiskey. What are you doing in AA? But he said, here recently, the last two or three years, we've softened up a great deal. We've been taking chances on people with cars and <clears throat> watches and rings, and by golly, some of you guys are making it. You're working out all right. But he said, your age is against you. We don't have many guys in your 20s. But he said, 
I am perfectly willing because I am willing to help anybody. I'm willing to meet you down at the meeting tonight. He said, I'm willing to meet you at three meetings. He said, I'm going to be in Temple City tonight. I'll be in Pasadena tomorrow night. I'm going to Arcadia on Tuesday night. He said, I'm going to introduce you around a lot of people. I'm going to get you a lot of phone numbers. I'm going to get to see that you have a book. <clears throat> and I'm going to put you and I'm going to launch you into this program. And then you make the decision what you want to do. Well, needless to say, I don't like this guy. You know, there's about 18, 20 years differential in our age. We've got that generation gap. And I'm sitting there and I'm listening to this guy. And I'm thinking, man, you know, <laughs> if he could make it, anybody could make it. He's about as rotten a guy as I'd met in a long time. And I, I couldn't think about, you know, anything except I want to get down to that meeting. And you know, I want to drive my car and he's going to be there in the parking lot and I'll just crush the hell out of him with my car is what I want to do and when he says if you got a car I'll say yeah you're laying under it you rotten old man now <laughs> well I went down to that meeting in spite of myself I went there in spite of him I went there because this is a God-directed thing I got into the automobile and I drove down to the meeting I just hardly wait to get there and I pulled into the parking lot and my God he was waiting there and I was really surprised and I parked my car I forgot how much I hated him and I parked my car, and he walked up, and he opened the door. I got out, and he put his arm around me, and I loved that guy from that day to the day he died. Hell of a guy for everybody else but himself. He had eight years on the program, and then he went back out and drank some booze because the resentments ate him up. <clears throat> Very resentful individual. Resentments are a luxury we as alcoholics can't afford. <clears throat> you know, chapter six was for other people to turn his will and his life over to the care of anybody. Totally just could not be done. And he would get resentful over the fact that people wouldn't do the things he wanted them to do. And eventually he got to the point where he had to surrender totally or, or I guess, drink. And so he chose to drink. He stayed out there damn near 12 years. And he again, another man that kept coming back in and kept trying to get a hold of him, trying to make it, but his ego said, don't stay because you are the guy that carried the message. He was a tremendous speaker in AA. Talked all over hell, carried the message to thousands of people. And he kept saying, you know, I wasn't the guy. I carried the message. I, I sponsored the people. I did the job. I lost eight years. And he couldn't forget it until he had a heart attack some 12 years later. Brought him to his knees. Came back in. Had a year and a half on the program and then he died. And we talked about things that were necessary. We talked about things that weren't necessary too. <clears throat> hell of a guy. Hell of a sponsor. Best sponsor in the world because he was my sponsor, that guy. He's the guy that took the time out that Sunday afternoon to come out and see me. He's the guy that met me down there at Temple City. The old Temple City meeting in those days, 80, 90, the finest drunks ever came out of the San Gabriel Valley, let me tell you. And we were a wealthy group, very wealthy group. We had so much money in the group in those days, by God, we had donuts before and after the meeting. Can you believe that? <laughs> we didn't have them flaky, plain old donuts, man. We had red jelly donuts. We liked them red jelly donuts. They were good for new people. See a new guy coming through the door and he's all green and hung out. <clears throat> and the red jelly donut committee had slide right up on him there. How are you doing, buddy? Glad to see you. Oh, yeah. How about some coffee? I bet you'd like a donut. <laughs> no, no, I don't want a donut. Did you ever look at a red jelly donut when you got a hangover? Jesus, it makes your teeth itch, you know. I don't, I don't want your donut. Jeez. And they all stood around in groups, and they all talked at the same time about different things. Ever notice that in AA? And every time some guy gets to the, the punchline of the story, he's trying to tell him, somebody interrupts him. When you're new, you hear that keep coming back, and you think, that's why, yeah. Yeah, if I keep coming back, I'll hear the end of something around here. You know, I never hear nothing. <laughs> Very rude people in AA. But it works. That's the important thing. It works. Yeah, a guy stands up in front of the media in a typical AA meeting. He stands up there and tells everybody what a jackass he is. They become hysterical over the fact that this guy's the biggest bum in town. Yeah, he drinks whiskey and they beat him up. They laugh. <clears throat> drinks whiskey, goes to jail. They laugh more. Huh? <clears throat> he drank something called Jamaican ginger. He got off the whiskey. 
<clears throat> the, Jama the Jamaica ginger gave him the Jake leg. I never heard of such a thing. <clears throat> the Jake leg put him in the hospital for a couple of months. They didn't only laugh, they were hysterical. You know, the poor bugger can't walk. That had to be the funniest thing anybody had ever heard in a long time. And my sponsor's sitting there, you know, and he's a nudger. They're all nudgers. Sponsors learn it in sponsor school. Did you hear that? <clears throat> Christ, they got you in the front row. You're not deaf. And your wife, your wife learns it through osmosis. You know, she never has been to sponsor school, but she sits there, Did you hear that, Harry? Ha, <laughs> ha. That's you right there. Terrible thing. You're humiliated and you get a sore side. <clears throat> and the guy's telling things that have been hiding all my life. And I'm thinking, what the hell is he telling all that? I wouldn't tell anybody things like that. I <clears throat> know. But he talked. And he talked about coming to the program. <clears throat> yes, and he talked about the sobriety. But he'd left me, you see, that man had left me. Because I, I'd lost identification. In the beginning, I can identify with a guy. He's a street man out of L.A. I know them L.A. streets, but he come from the tough street. <laughs> Way tougher than I'd ever seen. And he lost me. And he'd been 70, 80 jails. I ain't that bad. And I get to thinking, you know, I'm young, and, and I haven't had that much trouble. And, and I really have no story. What kind of a qualification do I have in this program? For goodness sake, I've only been in 25 jails. I drank a little Vitalis and Aquavelva once in my life. What's that? You <clears> know, <throat> that Aquavelva, that uh, small hole. You know, <clears throat> bad. <clears throat> but... You know, that really didn't have any, any qualification, I, I didn't think. I, I felt, you know, I'm really a little bit young to be here. I, I think I might go out again. And, but that man very, made a, a very profound statement that night, and I'll always be glad that he did. He extracted it out of the book, and he elaborated a little on it. He said, it, it don't make any difference what you drank or where you drank it or how much you consumed. He said, it's what it's doing to you. And he said, if it's tearing up any part of your life, you don't have to go any farther. And when he said that, I'm thinking, yeah, it's tearing the hell out of my life. It sure is. I'm, I'm so damn tired of hurting myself I could just spit. And as I looked at that guy that night, the one thing I knew past a shot of a doubt, I never had to hurt myself anymore if I didn't want to. Because he hadn't hurt now for nine and a half years. That guy hadn't hurt. Program of A is a program of example. You like what you see. You, you come back and you want to see a little more, isn't it? What he is speaks so loud I cannot hear a word he says. The example of the man, the street man. There he was. No street man but a man. A man, by God, and he's clean, and he's sharp, and he's happy, and his eyes are clear, and he laughs a great deal, and his clothes are fine. God, he's got a set of threads on, probably because of a hundred bucks, and I, I thought, man, if he didn't get nothing else out of AA, what a set of drapes he got. I bet that maybe they got another issue coming through or something, or I can hustle one of these guys, you know. And I'm thinking, hell, oh, that's, that's all right. And then he said, if I could do it, you could do it, and, and I think maybe I could. Because that guy had so much trouble. His woman had divorced him and remarried, and his kids, they all hated him, he said. But he said one day a miracle came to pass, and, and he bought the package of this program, and he had a change of attitude, and his kids walked on down and the street, and they came to see him one day, and they learned to like him, to respect him and love him. Got up and looked around that night and had seen it all. Had seen them tough guys in AA sitting there crying. Tough, big, tough guys crying. And the story was related to me that night. I didn't realize it that night, but it was told, and I heard it hundreds upon hundreds of times since, that they laughed because they were miserable, and they cried because they were happy, and they called it Alcoholics Anonymous. Oversimplification, maybe so, but it's the only program I got. And as I look back over the years, and I think, you know, I damn near missed it all, because the second meeting I was ever to go to was almost the last meeting I was to ever attend. The second meeting, my sponsor said, I'm going to meet you in Pasadena, and I said, do we have to go to Pasadena? That's a rotten town over there. And he says, we're going to Pasadena. I'll meet you there. And I drove over to Pasadena to what they call the Villa Street Group. It was the mother group. It was the oldest group within the area. And that group was filled with old-timers. 
As a matter of fact, you had to have ten years on the program to read the steps, you know. Then the speaker that night, an old-timer, been sober 137 years, my God. And when he spoke, he took up, he stood up there, God, I learned to love the guy later on. But the, when he talked, he always showed a picture of himself. And it was a great big blown-up mugshot, taking him when he's doing time in a county jail. And the point that he tried to get across was he says, look at me when I'm drinking and look at me now. And I looked at that picture and I looked at Artie and I thought, Jesus, he looked better drunk that guy did. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I got to get the hell out of here. Yeah. This, this outfit ages the hell out of these guys. And you know something? I went out the next day and I bought a pint of whiskey and I took a long drag out of it. And I threw it away. And from that day to this, it has been necessary. God moving in strange and mysterious ways because my sponsor said you got to go to three meetings and I didn't want him to think I couldn't get to three meetings. In the third meeting, I walked into that Arcadia group, which was to become my home group. And at the Arcadia group that night, I met a half a dozen guys and we were about the same age. And we ran from 26 up to 36. And we started going to meetings together and having meetings after the meetings together. And they're the good kind when you're new, man. Then meetings after the meetings because you get the in-depth inventories taken after the meetings. You make notes, you know, yeah. And we soon discovered there were a lot of flaky people in AA, yeah, a lot of cliques. And so we formed our own clique to be against the other cliques. That's important when you're new, right? It's even important when you're older, right? Yeah. And we were going to get that San Gabriel Valley straightened out. We were going to run one of our guys for secretary of the largest group. And from that, we would branch out and we would control the other groups in the valley there. And then we would put in one central treasury system where the money would be funneled in and it all looked very good. Oh, yes. <clears throat> but they said, you can't do that because you've got to have a year of sobriety before you can warn anybody for secretary. <clears throat> well, they thought they were going to get us out of there, but we hung in. And at the end of the year, this Pollock, he gets a year in. We run him for secretary. And they say, there's, there's, no, there's no politics today. Don't you believe it? Boy, on election night, we went down to El Monte and Baldwin Park. We imported a bunch of friends. <clears throat> and our man, my God, he became secretary of that group. It was a landslide. And a week later, he joined the other cliques. <laughs> yeah, put us on coffee detail, picking up tra ice trays. <clears throat> oh, yeah, he was rotten, that guy was. But I'll tell you the one thing it did for us all. It had us looking around. When you start looking around, what do you see? You see people in AA, don't you? And that's all you ever see is people. You see people from all walks of life. You see people that you wouldn't do any drinking with and they wouldn't with you. I saw people I won't share all my sobriety with them, and they're not going to share all of theirs with me. But as the guy told me years ago, Norm, he says there's not a guy in this program would dislike you so bad he'd like, to, he'd like to see you take a drink. And no matter what you stand for in your personal life, your age, like, would you call him up, he'd be down there to see you. And he'd sit there with understanding, be compassionate, and he'd help. Because he wouldn't want to see you go through that, <clears throat> that grinder in that jungle one more trip. <clears throat> he would be there, and he would help you, regardless of what he thinks. Yeah. Got to be as good a deal as I've ever found in my life. <clears throat> I'd love to tell you that each and every one of these things come. <clears throat> that I learned all of these things in the early months, in the early years, but they don't. It's a continual educational period. But one thing has never changed. That I found out very young, very early in the program, that by golly, you can't have and you can't keep what you don't give away. That I have to make that total transition. That I got to quit taking because I'm a taker by nature. I'm a taker of things and a user of people. I'm a loser. <clears throat> you got to give, Norm. My sponsor says there's room here for all. Give it, Norm. Pick up that ashtray. Pick up that tray. <clears throat> Move the chair. Make the coffee. If you're politically inclined, Norm, we'll run you for secretary and guarantee you the job, Norm. Honest to God. <clears throat> you want to go beyond their central service, general service, institutional work, but he says where it's really at is a, is a 12-step call on the guy still hurting out there. Carrying the message out there to the man that's still cutting up. 
<coughs> sitting there on a one-on-one and giving a little of him, you know, a little of yourself to him and he to you, and, <coughs> and getting a little lucky, and this guy latches on to it, and you start taking him to meetings. And pretty sure a year goes by, and, and he's standing up in front of the group <coughs> at the end of that year. And he gets that cake, and he blows out the candle. And he looks out there in the audience, and there you sit, and he identifies, you. my sponsor's there. That's Charlie. Never one for him wouldn't be here. And you say, my life. And if you're the sponsor that he's talking about, uh, that feeling you've been looking for all your life, that sense of well-being, if you're that sponsor, that sense of well-being is an overwhelming thing. And as humble as we alcoholics are, you may turn to the man sitting next to you. You might say, I be sponsor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not because you're so ego-bound, but just because you feel so damn good and you want to share this with somebody else. <clears throat> you have arrived. A feeling, that sense of well-being that I tried to find in the whiskey. I found it here on the program. And all I had to do was be willing to be willing to give a little for the hell of it and want nothing in return. <clears throat> a man said you can't, you never bought it, you can never sell it. You can only give it. And the more you give, the better it is. <clears throat> and on it went. And I'd love to tell you that every day has been a holiday for me and every meal has been a banquet. But that's what they promised me now. Now they said, Norm, you're going to take the good days, you take the bad days. You've got to stand out there and be counted when, that, when everything falls down around you. In 1962, for example, I couldn't hit a lick. 1962, everything I touched, touched turned to pucky. You know the kind of year, huh? I got involved with the people downtown. I'm from downtown. They were from downtown, downtown. You know what I mean? Yeah, they ate my lunch in 62, I'll tell you. Financially, I was in the worst shape of my life, and it was one, it seemed to be one thing after another in September of that year, why, as I stood there in front of St. Luke's Hospital, and I said, Jesus Christ Almighty, why? Why, why, why? Hasn't there been enough this year? I got an honest desire to take a drink. I got an honest desire to take a drink all year. And I got the Arab surf. I got so bad I was in Florida. I even ordered a drink in Florida, sitting in a gin mill, in a place that I don't belong. I'm in the drinking world. I don't belong there. The man says, what do you have? He says, give me a double zing. There it was, because I forgot for a moment who the hell I was and where I came from and what it took to bring me to that point in my life. Through the grace of God that looks after damn fools and drunks and guys that can't cut it on their own, I didn't have to take that drink. I was there for a moment. I remember who the hell I was and where I came from. And as I stood out there in front of St. Luke's Hospital, deep inside I knew. Deep inside I knew you never get more than what you can carry. What the hell? The old shooter upstairs has always been kind. He cuts everything to size. He gives the big loads to the big horses and the small ones. He's always giving the guy's name Norm. Instead of standing around crying a poor mouth about what you didn't get or what you did get, why don't you thank him for what you have and what you are, for what this day has brought. And so one more time, I'll say thank you very much. Thank you very much for what you give me, man. Thank you very much for this day. Thank you very much for the 26 years you let me walk out there on the sunny side of the street. Because, hell, I know guys that died and never saw 26 days. Because they died on the street of booze and fantasy, busted dreams and broken hearts and tears, tears by the bucketful. They went out hard, let me tell you. They went out with that heat on. And they justified their existence to the bitter end. So you see, I haven't had to do it. It isn't necessary for me today to justify my existence to anybody. Sure, from time to time I do it because I get scared. You get a little frightened. Uh, and so you find yourself standing there justifying things that you don't have to. Two years, two months ago, I resigned from a corporation. I've been with 22 years and opened up my own business. And I... <clears throat> I compromised a little bit, maybe. And I justified a little. And I justified things that weren't necessary. And it almost ate me alive, you see. Because deep inside, I know I don't have to do that. Because I'm not coming from behind. When I left that corporation, I did them a job for 22 years, and I'm not coming from behind. 
Even though I'm going out, I'm now a competitor to they. Still and all, I will not, even though I did, ever have to do that again. Because I was clean yesterday, I was clean today, and God willing, I'll be clean tomorrow. And so I will not have to justify my existence out there. I'm doing the best I can do with the equipment that God give me one day at a time. And I'll walk out on that street, and I'll be on the street, and I'll feel good, and I'll be respected by people, and <clears throat> I'll be respected by myself, which is better yet. And I'll be able to, do, to go home at night uh, to a house, because I live in a house. And, and in the house that I live in is a woman. She's a red-headed Irish woman, and, and she's glad I'm coming in most of the time. <clears throat> And nobody cries in that joint today because their old man is drunk and tearing it up. And I haven't heard a kid of mine scream at me for years. And I've watched them go from small ones to big ones. And I've seen the boys go to schools and get some education. And I've seen some daughters go to schools and get some educations. And, and I've taken my oldest daughter, I've taken all of my daughters downtown. And one by one, I've done it. <clears throat> and I bought them their first pair of high-heeled shoes. I, I watched them chickens grow up and they became women. The chickens of my life became the women of my life. And I, I cry now because they are women. And they're no longer the chickens that kiss me goodnight. They move out of my house and, and they date jackasses and they... <laughs> they all come around, you know. And eventually when they walk in with one of them, you know, we're going to get married. I want you to meet David. David Jesus. Oh, God. <clears throat> Baby, there's got to be something better than that out there to help you find it, huh? <clears throat> no, I love him. How could you love him, you know? <clears throat> but you go through it and you survive it all and you don't have to take a drink. And if you're very lucky, you walk them down the aisle one by one and you cry. And you cry every step of the way and four or five hundred people are sitting in a church to watch you cry and <clears throat> 80, 90 Alkies and they're crying because Alkies cry better than anybody, don't they? Uh, you take a bunch of Alkies to a supermarket opening and they cry. Yeah. <laughs> very emotional people. And you get up to the altar, you know, and you got this chicken there all dressed in white and everybody's crying like hell for the joy they're crying for the happiness of it all. And your A buddies are crying because they're happy because you're happy. They got a feeling for you, a feeling that you've never felt. And <clears throat> you got a feeling for him and you're so happy that he's sober and that he's able to be here. And I'd like to be able to tell you how these feelings really affect people like us, but I, I've never been able to find the adequate words. I can only tell you that if you knew out there, buddy, every loving thing I am or ever will be is going to be because of AA. That it's been a long walk from the L.A. County Jail to the point that I stand today. And But for the grace of God, Alcoholics Anonymous, and friends like you, I could have missed it all. Thanks a million. God love you. <laughs>